Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming for the GI seminar today. And then uh, today we have our own uh, Professor Andrew O'Neill. And as you all know, the Andrew O'Neill is the director of the Griffith Asia Institute, and then also the professor in the School of Government and the International Relations at Griffith University. Uh, he recently <coughs> have a very fresh book uh, published in March. 2013, titled Asia, the U.S. and Extended Nuclear Deterrence, uh, Atomic Umbrellas in the 21st Century, published uh, 2013. Also, Andrew, with all his uh, other uh, career experiences, before taking his position, uh, academic position in 2000, he worked in the Australian intelligence community on North Korean-related issues, and then, as you all know, uh, Andrew might be one of the experts uh, on North Korea in Australia or over the Australia. And he recently had a, a piece about the, the North Korean crisis in the Australian uh, opiate piece. So anyone who might be interested might take a read on that piece. And then today he will uh, talk about what is North Korea's nuclear strategy. Thanks, Andrew. I often think being a North Korea expert is, is simply a question of how, how willing you are to speculate in public. Um, and I guess maybe there's some truth in that. One of the things that, that really intrigues me about North Korea is quite a straightforward question, and that is, what does North Korea want? When I worked in government, we used to congratulate ourselves on being able to understand North Korea. And the phrase, relentlessly tactical, was, was, was frequently used. And that this sort of characterised North Korea's behaviour and that somehow this shed light on what North Korea actually wanted. Whereas, in fact, tactics as we know are essentially a modus operandi. It doesn't really tell us much about aims and the strategy to achieve those aims. And I recently asked some South Korean uh, experts at a, a workshop, I'm heading to Seoul next week, and I hope to ask the question again to a few other people, you know, what does North Korea want? What explains its behaviour? Fundamentally, fundamentally, what explains its behaviour? Is it an instrumental form of behaviour? Uh, and if so, what is North Korea's preferred endgame? Does it have an endgame? And what is the strategy that binds all of this together? I think, and it may be a coincidence because I'm interested in nuclear issues, but I think a good place to start is trying to understand what North Korea's nuclear strategy is. Because as we know, nuclear weapons have become a much more uh, a pervasive theme in North Korea's statements about its capabilities. We know North Korea is uh, the world's newest nuclear weapon state. It's tested three times, uh, the most recent test of course being la uh, in February this year. Uh, we know that it has made clear statements that it has absolutely no intention of disarming its nuclear forces until the other nuclear weapon states have disarmed theirs, so essentially no intention to disarm. We know that North Korea, uh, the Supreme People's Assembly in North Korea took a decision last year to enshrine nuclear weapons uh, possession in its constitution formally. Um, and we know that nuclear forces, or at least discussion about nuclear forces in the North Korean uh, media, particularly the Korean Central News Agency, the DPRK, which is the mouthpiece of the regime, uh, increasingly talks about nuclear weapons as a military capability, as distinct from an abstract deterrent, uh, in relation to an abstract deterrent posture. So what I want to argue in this presentation is that we've actually seen a shift in North Korea's strategic, a shift in North Korean thinking that demonstrates a much more focused strategic view of, of what nuclear weapons can achieve as an instrument of national policy and that this uh, more broadly perhaps can help tell us uh, or at least shed some further light on, on that question, what does North Korea want? Well, why should we even bother focusing on nuclear weapons? I hear some of you uh, thinking. Well, one argument is that North Korea already has the capacity, after all, to inflict massive destruction on regional targets. Of course, most notably Seoul, which is one of Asia's largest metropolitan centres, greater Seoul area encompassing over, um, around, uh, up, uh, uh, around 15 to 20 million uh, people. Um, and we also know that North Korea has significant in the order of 5,000 tonnes worth 
of biochemical warfare agents as well that they can uh, launch on artillery uh, as well as uh, fit on the top of uh, short and medium range missiles. We know that North Korea has around 10,000 artillery systems uh, deployed close to the border with South Korea, including multiple launch rocket systems that can fire off 18, around 18 to 20 uh, rounds uh, every go. Um, we know that uh, North Korea could fire off at the very least 7,000 artillery rounds before South Korean counter-battery fire could neutralise those artillery systems. So even in the event that um, USROK counter-battery systems can neutralise North Korean artillery, and again that's a big if, they can get off uh, several uh, thousand rounds uh, of artillery against Seoul. So what we're talking about here is a non-nuclear capacity to essentially lay waste to large areas of South Korea. And in addition, regional targets, most notably uh, Japan, through uh, medium-range Nodong missiles, and perhaps significantly parts of China as well. And of course this would not be lost on, on the Chinese leadership uh, that shares a 1,400-kilometre border with uh, North Korea. First point. Second point, surely the regime in Pyongyang is rational and it kind of disturbs I think some academics to, th to think of decision makers not being rational. We, we all tend to assume that ultimately decision makers are rational. Um, partly it's a form of mirror imaging. We expect them to have our sets of um, uh, standards, beliefs, ideals, cost-benefit analysis and so on. But surely the regime in Pyongyang, no matter how erratic and unpredictable, uh, is rational enough to know that nukes are unusable and that any use would result in its demise. So why talk about nuclear weapons? Thirdly, the DPRK's nuclear weapons are intended as bargaining chips. Okay. Bargaining chips to attain a better deal from the international community. So it makes no sense referring to North Korea's nuclear weapons in, in a strategic context. Okay? Because that implies that somehow the North Koreans, the North Korean leadership sees nuclear weapons as usable, whereas clearly they're only usable in terms, at least from this perspective, in terms of bargaining to get a better deal for the regime. Essentially extorting aid from major aid donors, particularly the United States and uh, especially South Korea. So why the focus on nukes? Well, I guess my take is slightly different. The first point's a little abstract, but I, 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 think it's, I think it's quite critical. It's important to distinguish nuclear weapons from other weapon systems, because I think this is often overlooked. And it's not just because of the physical destructive power, the blast heat radiation effects that make up a nuclear weapon. It's also the normative barrier to their use, which has been a very powerful force in international relations since, since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Even the United States, as Nina Tannenwald has demonstrated in, in a lot of her work on norms and uh, non-nuclear use, even the United States, during the Truman administration, under Eisenhower, Kennedy, in the post-war era, was uh, very averse to the idea of using nuclear weapons. Truman referred to it. He actually referred to it in the case of North Korea, which I think links into North Korea's motivations for, for going nuclear under Kim Il-sung. But even during these periods, there was an aversion to nuclear use. So the normative barrier is quite significant. No leader wants to be the next leader to use nuclear weapons. They're still seen, to quote uh, Bernard Brody, as the absolute weapon, both in physical terms but also in political terms. It's also, North Korea's nuclear program is also significant because it has provoked, its nuclear program has provoked renewed proliferation pressures in South Korea and to a lesser extent Japan. Um, we've had a range of, of increasingly mainstream, albeit conservative, but mainstream South Korean politicians uh, 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 calling not just for a return of US tactical systems to the ROK that were withdrawn in 1991, but also calling for uh, South Korean leaders to, to, in a sense, reboot the program that was terminated um, in the 1970s, the nuclear weapons program that was, that was terminated, to, to look again at South Korea becoming a nuclear weapons state because this is the only way they can deal on a kind of equal level with their northern, um, with, um, their northern counterparts. And there have been uh, some murmurings in Japan as well, despite 
the anti-nuclear fallout from uh, Fukushima. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, nuclear possession for North Korea confers inordinate influence to a country that exhibits all the hallmarks of a failing state. A number of analysts have said, apart from nuclear weapons, North Korea has nothing. It is a failed state. Never has a state with so little parlayed its vulnerabilities and insecurities to gain so much. Um, this is a story of a state uh, that has bargained and negotiated from a position of weakness to achieve significant outcomes. And nuclear weapons have been central to that. So in terms of the argument, and I noticed this was made last night on the 7.30 report, I don't know if anyone watched it, the woman who was the key, one of the, one of the agents, North Korean agents that downed the Cal airliner in 1987, but her argument was, well, look, all, all the regime is interested in is bargaining nukes away for a better deal. I don't buy that, and, and don't take my word for it. Um, look at what the North Koreans themselves are saying. Um, essentially, that quote says that uh, Libya, I'm not quite sure where the Balkans comes from, but states in the Middle East gave up their existing war deterrent, leading to the pressure and appeasement of the imperialists after failing to build up powerful capacities for self-defence. Um, finally, these countries, i.e. Libya, Iraq, fell victim to their aggression. So in a sense, you know, this is pretty clear. There's no way we're going to give up nuclear weapons. Um, they can never be bartered for any wealth. And even if we, you know, giving, giving the benefit of the doubt to you know, the dear old uh, KCNA, um, in terms of propaganda, there's a message behind this. There's a message behind this, as there is with many North Korean statements. And the message is clear. The regime does not see nuclear weapons as bargaining chips. And its behaviour reinforces this over time as well. Uh, US uh, offers in particular to provide significant aid over time have been initially accepted but ultimately uh, rebuffed when the deal was uh, close to being uh, uh, finalised uh, on the basis of the Americans linking that, uh, a fundamental condition of that aid, to North Korea giving up nuclear weapons. So what's North Korea's worldview? I think a good place to start, and perhaps even finish, is with Adrian Buzo's definition, or his, his idea of, of the North Korean state, is what he terms a guerrilla dynasty, and really imposed a, a guerrilla mentality imposed and nurtured by three generations of Kims, but essentially resulting from Kim Il-sung's worldview, which, which was fundamentally formed by his own personal experience as, a, as, a, as an anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter. Uh, fighting with the Chinese uh, initially uh, as part of uh, their guerrilla forces uh, and then with a Soviet rifle regiment um, towards the end of World War II. And his fundamental worldview was very much shaped by his personal, his personal experience. And I'll, I'll just read something very quickly here by Buzo from his book. Kim Il-sung's isolation shaped his intellect by limiting his exposure to outside ideas and moulding the ways in which he conceptualised and dealt with practical problems. Guerrilla life instilled in him the habits of self-reliance, perseverance and unremitting struggle. But we may also see in this period, i.e. the pre-1945 period, the roots of his later attitude of deep suspicion and mistrust towards outsiders and more broadly the diversity and pluralism of the external world. He lived in a predatory political subcultural force which encouraged him in, uh, in him an outlook that accepted callousness and criminality as a daily reality. He also came to possess the deep conviction that his experience of people and politics in the guerrilla movement held true for people and politics everywhere. Um, I think that's quite a powerful quote, and I think it can tell us a lot, not just about Kim Il-sung's behaviour, but also Kim Jong-il's behaviour and uh, Kim Jong-un's behaviour. This is an ideology in North Korea. This is an ideology of a kind of guerrilla mentality that was initially, uh, initially imposed by Kim Il-sung but nurtured by his son uh, and, and I would argue in, uh, quite obviously by his grandson as well. There is, there is a very strong connection in ideological terms and I think it's reflected in four key elements or reflected and reinforced. The first point perhaps is the most obvious. North Korea, the regime has a profoundly uh, Thucydidean uh, and Hobbesian take on international relations where only the strong survive, might is right, zero sum uh, with, and without uh, without a strong military force to deal with your adversaries and enemies, uh, you will essentially be, be steamrolled by stronger powers. 
a harsh national ideology, uh, dwelling on past wrongs and future retribution. So if you listen to North Korean statements, this is, this is a very strong theme. Writing past wrongs, uh, the promise of future retribution against sworn enemies. Very strong uh, theme throughout its ideology. Thirdly, an emphasis on autarky or juche, self-reliance, uh, in domestic and international policy. Which is quite ironic when you consider how dependent North Korea is on, North Korea has been on aid um, and assistance from China. But again, it's part of the myth-making of uh, self-reliance. And the military first policy, which was introduced formally by Kim Jong-il in 1995, but essentially had been in place since 1948, when Kim Il-sung became North Korea's first leader. Military first policy exemplifies domestic priorities. The military, in terms of formal positioning in the, in the DPRK, is equal with the party. It's equal with the Supreme People's Assembly. Um, the only institution it's not equal with is the Supreme Leader. Kim Jong-un. Uh, and Victor Cha has actually talked about what he terms a neo-Juche revivalism, which is evident in the behaviour of the current leader, Kim Jong-un, a kind of attempt to revive with much sharper characteristics this idea of, of, of self-reliance. And I think this, is, this tells us a lot, I think, about how North Korea sees the United States. It's my understatement for the day. This is a maths textbook question. I mean, I won't read it out, it's all there. It is deeply ingrained in North Koreans from a very early age that the United States uh, essentially is out to get North Korea. It's out to conquer the country. And as I'll, as I'll refer to a little later down the track, um, it's not entirely difficult to understand why. Um, the um, United States committed... Uh, I mean, what can only be described as, as a series of fundamental war crimes against North Korea during the Korean War. It dropped more, uh, it, it dropped more military ordnance on North Korea in, in um, saturation bombing than it dropped during the entire Pacific War during World War II. It used everything short of, of nuclear weapons against North Korea uh, during the Korean War. And so this, this narrative, if you like, of we need to be strong internally and externally against the United States is, is kind of plays off um, this deep-seated anti-Americanism, if that's the right term for it. Well, what are North Korea's aims? Well, again, judging from statements, behaviour, um, defective testimony, uh, historical trends, bunching all of these things together, I think we can come up with a list of aims, because we have to understand the aims in order to understand the strategy. And I think the first, the first two are pretty much relate to the overriding role of sovereignty in how the regime, how the three Kims have seen priorities of, of the regime. Preservation of authority and control over the DPRK within its own borders. Autonomy of action free from external interference. And I think it's quite interesting too. really look closely at North Korean statements and perhaps you get a different take by looking at them in Korean, but you know, certainly if you look at them in English, there's a very clear correlation between a lot of North Korean statements and statements from decolonising states, states that have been subject to imperial control for a long period of time. And there is this sort of insecurity, this pervasive insecurity, a pervasive sense of sovereignty being absolutely indivisible, absolutely uh, central to everything the country does, and uh, a constant need to be on guard against future attempts to colonise uh, the country. And, and again, I think we can play this back into uh, Korean history prior to 1948. Korea had been conquered many times uh, over its long uh, uh, history. And, and again, I think this certainly plays in not just to North Korea's experience, but Korea's experience under the Chosun dynasty, uh, the Silla period as well, uh, going right back through our history, how many times Korea had been invaded. It wants deference, and it also wants material support from neighbouring states. It wants aid, it wants money, it wants support. And it wants a dialogue of equals with the United States. And I think this is important. It doesn't just, it doesn't just want a dialogue with the US. That's not good enough. And again, 
looking at statements, behaviour in negotiations, North Korea will not accept a conditional dialogue with the United States. It wants an unconditional dialogue. And there's no way the regime will accept a dialogue that imposes conditions on its nuclear forces. Ergo, points one and two, particularly two. And it aims to sow division and disarray among its adversaries. I mean, part of the, at least for me, the interesting aspect of the, uh, again, sitting, you know, in relative comfort here in Brisbane, watching things unfold on the peninsula in, in November 2010, when the North Koreans um, carried out an artillery attack against an outer island, South Korean territory, um, you know, this, is, this was in part designed to sow uh, disarray and division within, within South Korea itself. And the kind of lacklustre response on the part of the then South Korean president, Lee Myung-bak, uh, and the criticism he received for that, on the one hand you're too tough, on the one hand you're too soft, in relation to North Korea, was, you know, really did, in a sense, deepen that, uh, those divisions within South Korea over how to deal with the North. And, and those divisions are quite, quite significant in some ways, or perhaps less so these days. All right, let's move to capabilities. What has North Korea got? What, do we, what does the international community know that North Korea has? And again, it's important to define the DPRK's nuclear weapons capabilities in relation to its broad military capabilities, which, as I say, are significant, including five, you know, approximately 5,000 tonnes of biochemical warfare agents. And as I say, a significant conventional capability. Really, since North Korea initiated, fully initiated its nuclear program in the early 1980s, a lot of the focus, all of the focus, was on a plutonium program. By far the hardest aspect of acquiring nuclear weapons is generating the requisite fissile material. The rest, they say, is pretty easy in terms of fabricating a warhead, um, uh, bomb designs and so on. The really hard part, the hard graft, is manufacturing fissile material. And I won't go into details now about um, the sort of fits and starts to the Korea's fissile material program. Suffice it to say that its plutonium program was focused on the key reactor at the Yongbyon nuclear facility, which was itself the focus of negotiations uh, with the United States. I mean, the North Koreans began to download spent fuel in, in the late 1980s. They, they were not honest with the International Atomic Energy Agency's Agency in terms of declarations of how much fissile material they had. Uh, the IAEA spotted a range of discrepancies in North Korean reports, um, matched these up with the experience of international inspectors, and it was clear the North Koreans were lying to um, international agencies. And you had a, a series of crises, 93, 94, 2002, 3. To cut a very long story short, uh, in 2008, the North Koreans destroyed one of the key cooling towers at uh, the Yongbyon uh, facility uh, linked to its plutonium program. And, and that, most observers thought, was in exchange for aid from the international community. And that, thought most observers, was the end of that. Earlier this year, the North Koreans have said they're going to resurrect their plutonium program, which perhaps is concerning in itself. It's doubly concerning because in 2010 was revealed that they have also embarked on a highly enriched uranium program. Now, why is all of this significant? It's significant because a dual-track fissile material program indicates the scale of a quantitative ambition. It indicates the North Koreans are not only are not content with a dozen or even, even a couple of dozen of nuclear weapons. What's clear here is that they have major ambitions for a large-scale nuclear weapons force, and they have referred uh, in some statements to the Pakistan example. Pakistan now has more nuclear warheads than India. Pakistan is refusing to engage in any dialogue on fissile material control internationally because it wants to get a quantitative leap, if you like, ahead in terms of its program before it's forced to come to the, to the negotiating table. So clearly the North Koreans have ambitions for a large nuclear weapons program. Presently, uh, it's estimated, David Albright at ISIS estimates, he actually says they, they could have anywhere up to 24 warheads, but most conservative estimates sort of hover around the 12 mark, even more conservatively, six to eight warheads. It depends uh, how much plutonium they've actually burned up through the three tests they've already had. Nonetheless, 
government NGO estimates that Pyongyang will have up to possibly even more, as many as 40 nuclear weapons in three years' time. That's part of the story. What about delivery capabilities? Well, these have evolved uh, significantly as well. We know that North Korea has an ability to hit targets in South Korea, Japan, Russia and China, and most international analysts agree that, that North Korea is close to acquiring the ability to strike Guam. And, and that's why the Musadan uh, intermediate-range ballistic missile test that's in the offing currently is so important, symbolically, because this missile, if it is uh, tested uh, successfully, will demonstrate a capability to hit Guam, which, is, of course, is one of America's uh, major military bases in, in the Pacific. Uh, symbolically, it's important, too, because that's the kind of key transit point for B-52s coming into the region that deploy up to the peninsula. So from North Korea's perspective, if it can reach the, the kind of third radius here, that gives it even, even more um, of, of, well, I'll talk more about the concept of leverage um, later, but it, but it certainly demonstrates the ability that it can hit Guam, which is significant. Now, the head of the Defence Intelligence Agency in the US estimated in 2005, that, that long ago, almost 10 years ago, that North Korea was in a position to fit a plutonium device on top of a SCUD and note on systems. Uh, of course, the SCUD systems are essentially isolated. Well, I say isolated. It's not that isolated if you live in South Korea, but they're isolated to sort of that area, Korean Peninsula, but also China as well. And the NODOMs are a, a medium-range missile which kind of have a larger radius that can cover all of Japan and larger parts of China in addition to parts of Russia. Now, many non-government estimates uh, have concurred with this assessment, but, of course, the issue here is payload range. Um, the heavier the payload, and nuclear, nuclear payloads are heavier than chemical and biological payloads, so obviously that's going to restrict your range. And so that's why the North Koreans have been working, uh, according to most reports, very consistently on trying to miniaturise their warheads. That's the aim. So smaller warheads, longer range, and conceivably as well uh, you, you use less plutonium, less, less highly enriched uranium. Often overlooked too is the hypothetical ability of North Korea to covertly transport warheads, I mean conceivably into the ROK, although I mean that would be pretty difficult, but perhaps more conceivably into China. We know that the border region between the DPRK and China is, you know, is fairly, you know, at times pretty loosely patrolled. We know the Chinese have concerns about North Korea's nuclear uh, weapons inventory, at least the security of it, and perhaps we're talking here about a post-DPRK world. Uh, where the regime is broken down. Nonetheless, um, this does give the North Korean regime some, at least hypothetical, leverage against the Chinese, which is always good to have, I think, if you're in Korea. Yet, North Korea is vulnerable. It's vulnerable. Certainly on the nuclear front, it's, it's vulnerable. It's almost certainly yet to acquire a secure second strike capability. Uh, what does that mean? It means if your forces are targeted and if your forces are, forces are struck first, you still have the capability to retaliate with nuclear weapons. So a secure second strike capability, usually in the form of a submarine uh, deployed at sea, difficult to detect, uh, but can retaliate once it gets word that the National Command Authority has been destroyed. Essentially that's what mutual assured destruction pivoted on during the Cold War, and many argue was the source of stability of man. North Koreans don't have that. We know that the North Koreans are working because the Chinese have done far more successfully on mobile, road mobile systems that introduce a degree of uncertainty in the minds of American planners. They can't be sure that they've picked up everything uh, through a first strike, and so they will be deterred from undertaking a first strike in the knowledge they probably haven't picked everything up. Again, deterrence dynamics. And this vulnerability, I think, is accentuated by two issues. I'll end up a little later concluding on, the, on a related point. The first is the likely unwillingness in the regime, Kim Jong-un essentially, to transfer pre-delegated launch authority beyond the supreme leadership. I mean, this, is a, this is a centrally controlled state. It's an authoritarian state. It's a totalitarian state. And so it's highly unlikely the regime, uh, Kim Jong-un, and the so-called triumvirate, the head of the Supreme People's Assembly and the Premier, along with Kim Jong-un, who were the kind of three key decision-makers, it's highly unlikely they've made a decision to pre-delegate launch authority to other military commanders or indeed other civilian commanders. So you have a highly centralised system. 
Now, the dangers of this, of course, if, is, is that from the North Korean point of view, is if those leaders are, are essentially, should we say, neutralised at the start of a conflict, then that takes out the entire decision-making apparatus, and so they can't retaliate. Why is that important? It's important because North Korea then becomes highly vulnerable to what's known as a decapitating strike. And it therefore becomes more tempting for US planners to undertake such a strike. And that's where you start to have uh, ideas of preemptive strikes coming into play. And, and that's probably something the Americans uh, you know, uh, in the Pentagon are thinking about currently. You know, to what extent are we seriously going to be considering? Um, and you know, that would obviously be a presidential decision. But to what extent are we seriously looking at preemptive strikes? And, and, and there's a whole discussion around that. Okay, I want to try and use some strategic theory to sort of to start looking a little bit more uh, deeply at North Korea's nuclear nuclear strategy. And you know, I think what's clear is that each nuclear weapon state has a doctrine, and it has more detailed guidance to manage and direct its nuclear forces. Even a state like China in 1964, when it tested its first device at Lot Nor, Mao Zedong, despite the hair-raising rhetoric about you know nuclear paper tigers, was not particularly ambitious in terms of China's nuclear force. Mao strongly believed, and uh, his successors also believe, that all China needs is nuclear weapons. It doesn't matter how many nuclear weapons they have. It doesn't really matter where they're deployed. But the mere fact they have nuclear weapons provides what's known as an assured retaliation against any US attempts to coerce China to exercise nuclear coercion, as the Americans did during um, the Taiwan Straits crisis in the 50s and the Korean War uh, armistice negotiations in 52-3. So the Chinese have always had a minimum deterrent. And the Chinese uh, had, since 1964, a no-first-use doctrine as well. And there's every reason to believe the Chinese mean it. It's not just window dressing. This is a serious doctrine. But even the Chinese, who have a kind of minimum deterrence, assured retaliation strategy, even the Chinese have developed detailed guidance to manage and direct nuclear forces. And for nuclear weapon states, this is supplemented by the development of procedures and systems for command and control of nuclear forces in peacetime and in wartime, because the nature of that command and control will obviously shift as you move into a crisis mode. So you have to have detailed procedures and systems in place to manage your nuclear forces, both from a positive dimension, positive, positive in terms of being able to assure that if you make a decision to use them, they can be used as a national command authority, but also from a negative perspective in terms of ensuring that unauthorised personnel don't use them. And this was the big challenge for the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And as Scott Sagan has demonstrated, even the United States experienced considerable challenges getting a fail-safe command and control system in place in the 50s and 60s. So we can assume the North Koreans are going to face even bigger challenges, potentially. So I think nuclear strategy can be seen through three essential lenses. The first is deterrence, the good old-fashioned D word. It's all about preserving the status quo. That's deterrence. It's essentially dissuading a state from using military force by persuading them that the costs of doing so would be greater than, than any potential gain. So it's all about uh, convincing another actor not to do anything. Okay, it's about preserving the status quo, quote-unquote. Most states we know, the overwhelming majority of states, seek to act defensively by deterring threats to their security. Even states that issue occasionally feisty or aggressive rhetoric, their actions tend to betray a much more defensive posture in terms of the military equipment they get, employment patterns and so on. So most states act to deter threats to their security as distinct from compelling others to do something against their will, which as we know, as in life itself, is more difficult than preserving the status quo. As Lawrence Friedman has, has written extensively, the uniquely destructive properties of nuclear, of nuclear weapons reinforce the logic of deterrence in international relations. Nuclear weapons raise the cost of conflict exponentially and encourage parties to have a shared stake in promoting successful deterrence. So it's a kind of reinforcing. Nuclear weapons, if anything, reinforce the power of deterrence, at least from a kind of strategic theory perspective. Coercion's different. Unlike deterrence, coercion, or as, as Tom Schelling calls it, compellence, 
is aimed at altering the status quo. It's designed to force someone to act against their will. And this can be achieved through threat of selective punishment, overwhelming punishment during the Cold War, escalation, disproportionate retaliation, or all of the above. It's designed to force others to do something against their will. But the key similarity with deterrence, as Schelling notes, is that it's instrumental. Coercion's instrumental. It's designed to produce a distinctive outcome. Any coercive threat requires corresponding assurances. The objective of a threat is to give somebody a choice. In this sense, unconditional threats are meaningless. So it's kind of classic rational actor models when we're thinking about deterrence and coercion. The third lens is war fighting. And I think, again, we often focus on the sort of abstract strategic theories of, of deterrence and compellence, but often overlooked is, you know, the, these things are, are often seen as military weapons. You know, I, th I think certainly on the part of new nuclear weapon states, um, there's a reason why they get these weapons. And it isn't just about deterring or, or coercing other states. It's also potentially about using them. Only three of the nine nuclear weapon states have declared no first use commitments. Interestingly, one of those is North Korea. The other two are India and China. This means that six reserve the right to use nuclear weapons first in any conflict. US nuclear doctrine, including if another state uses chemical or biological weapons. NATO during the Cold War had a first use policy, which was essentially designed to equalise the conventional asymmetry with the Warsaw Pact forces, which were conventionally stronger. Uh, even today, when the issue of NATO embracing a no-first-use doctrine is raised, it's quickly slapped down in NATO Council meetings. Germany has raised this on a few occasions, and it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, so clearly NATO wants to preserve the right, at least in theory, to use nuclear weapons first in any conflict in Europe, presumably to send a message to the Russians. Military and industrial or counterforce targets are typically prioritised over population centres. Uh, in war plans, although most agree that limited nuclear war is essentially unfeasible. Once you have um, an exchange of nuclear weapons, you know, that's pretty much it. You will inevitably have escalation to total, total nuclear war. And for many, the idea of a limited nuclear war is classic oxymoron. It's a significant uh, threshold. The last few slides now, deterrence in, in, in North Korea. Okay, let, let's look at North Korea through the lens of each of these concepts. You know, I guess what I want to argue is there's a bit of each of these in, in North Korea's nuclear strategy. Uh, it's not just about deterrence. It's not just about coercion. North Korea's emergence as a nuclear weapons state, when it formally declared that it had nuclear weapons in 2005, just prior to its first test in 2006, this period was characterised by many references with defensive in, to, uh, to defensive intent. And again, and I was one of these people, I mean, it all sounded convincing, because after all, this is a regime that was only really interested in survival. And of course, deterrence was the classic uh, strategy of choice for a state that's only interested in survival, right? That doesn't have any expansionary ambitions. So it sounded persuasive. And there was an assumption that the DPRK would follow in the footsteps of China in terms of its minimum deterrence doctrine, and that it wouldn't seek to enlarge its forces quantitatively, that small enough was good enough. And a strictly defensive intent, with the emphasis on deterrence, aligns with Pyongyang's highly insular philosophy and the Korean War experience with US saturation bombing that I mentioned. Many North Korean villages subject to US napalm attacks during the Korean War. There was not a single freestanding building left standing in North Korea after the US Air Force uh, and Navy had undertaken saturation bombing campaigns. So again, North Korea, if you look at some of the statements, and again, you know, don't necessarily read it all, I think the last sentence is, is interesting. This is, this is from February this year, just after the third test. The US should behave itself keeping in mind that the era when it used to blackmail the DPRK with nukes is now over. And again, this statement kind of emphasises the importance of deterrence, defensive uh, means that, that really we're only doing this because we want to deter a repetition of US nuclear coercion, uh, which you can substantiate. 
uh, on, on a number of occasions in the post-war period, not just in relation to Korea, but also in relation to other uh, instances as well. Coercion in North Korea. Well, it seemed a little far-fetched ten years ago or so when the North Koreans announced they were a nuclear weapons state that this was a state that would start dabbling in coercion. After all, this was the tool of the US imperialists. Why, why would the North Koreans want to go down uh, this road? For some time, North Korea has issued direct threats against its neighbours in the US. It threatened across the negotiating table in 1994 uh, with their South Korean counterparts at a very personal level across the negotiating table. If you don't comply with what we want, we will turn Seoul into a sea of fire. They didn't have nuclear weapons then, so these threats are not you know, they were making threats long before they became a nuclear weapons state. But only very recently has Pyongyang made explicit nuclear threats. And for me, what's significant here is that these public statements have moved beyond a retaliatory justification. Okay, we will only use nukes if we are struck first, we will retaliate, to hint strongly at, at first strike options. And the quote-unquote preemptive strikes statement uh, against US target statement by a senior uh, North Korean, uh, by a North Korean general just last month uh, raises uh, the issue here to what extent is the North interested in using nuclear weapons as coercive instruments. And again, in a sense, this would be in keeping with the North's more generic perspective on the value of using military force generally. And, and again, looking at North Korea's worldview, going back to the kind of chemist view of the world. It's not just about defending sovereignty, it's also about using military means to advance core national interests. And that, by definition, presupposes a degree of offensive uh, use as well as defensive. And it kind of aligns with the new guy's apparent penchant for greater risk-taking. I remember what I was like when I was 30 years old. I was more prone to risk-taking, but I didn't have a, a nuclear force and I, wasn't, I didn't oversee an authoritarian state. And in a sense, you know, his penchant for greater risk-taking will only increase if his perception is that it's being rewarded. And, you know, and again, I don't want to engage in pop psychology here, but clearly the more control you have, the more authority you have, the more inured to risk you feel you are. And, and, and I think this is part of the issue here with young guy, uh, is that he is surrounded by you know, clearly generals and, and others who uh, see him as the supreme leader and there is a sense that you, know, you become more inclined to take risks if you're not opposed or at least challenged. Uh, and again, looking at statements here, and I've got to say my brain was a bit scrambled after going through casing over the last uh, three or four months, but I think the key sort of phrase here is the reference to cutting-edge, smaller, lighter and diversified nuclear strike means. For me, that suggests more usable. And again, looking at the Chinese example, there is no way the Chinese would have used this sort of phrase throughout history in terms of describing their nuclear forces. So what you have here is, in a way, phrases that are, you know, that are directly uh, intended for, for consumption in the United States and the ROK and presumably Japan. Finally, war fighting. Well, like all other nuclear powers, North Korea undoubtedly has operational plans to employ its nuclear forces in a war. I, I don't think it's plausible, to use a double negative, I don't think it's plausible that they don't. Given that these are the crown jewels in the military arsenal, given the history of North Korea's view of the utility of using force, and given the amount of national investment, sunk costs that have gone, and risks that have gone into acquiring a nuclear weapons capability. And it's likely that there are plans for counter-force and counter-value targeting, so not just uh, US military bases in the ROK and Japan, possibly further afield in Guam, but also highly likely targeting uh, cities in uh, South Korea, but, but particularly Japan, which, which in a sense is more vulnerable to this. Under what circumstances would North Korea use nuclear weapons? Well, and again, this gets back to my opening comment about speculation, hopefully some informed speculation. Well, I think there are probably three scenarios. The last one may be a little controversial. I mean, the first one, I think, is, is perhaps relatively straightforward. I mean, in the event that the regime perceived that it was going down in conflict, 
that US ROK forces were moving to terminate the regime, that US ROK authorities had ruled out any deal to give key leaders sanctuary in China or anywhere else. The Chinese wouldn't be interested in any kind of reciprocal deal with the Americans. That's, that's plausible. Could be in terms of intra-war, intra-war deterrence, so deterring US and ROK forces from, from coming any further into, into North Korean territory. Or uh, an Israeli Samson option. Um, you know, these weapons may be essentially when the house is falling down. Um, that's when you use them, when, when your country is essentially being overrun. Um, and that's the Israeli strategy for, for using its nuclear weapons. It deploys all its nuclear assets to the centre of the country in and around Demona um, for a reason. Uh, historically, and that has been the view that the only time it would use nuclear weapons is if it was being defeated in a conventional war by opposing Arab armies, and that you have to safeguard these weapons in the middle of the country. So the Samson option, drawn from the biblical example. At the outset of war, again, an incentive to strike first. You use these weapons or you lose them. And again, this is, this is the real danger. This is, this is what can introduce a degree of stabilisation. The sense in Pyongyang that unless they use these weapons early on in a war, or, or possibly even later on in a crisis pre-war, that the US will, will be able to target successfully these weapons and, and neutralise any, any, any nuclear advantage North Korea may have. And finally, can we really presume rationality on the part of, of the regime? Well, sorry, can we necessarily presume rationality on the part of the regime? I think there's been a very interesting discussion going on that, you know, again, presumes that, that this, okay, this guy's a little erratic, he's a little, you know, he's a bit sort of, he's out there, but ultimately he's rational. He, he can calculate costs and benefits. He knows how far to put this is Kim Jong-un. He knows how far to push the United States and South Korea. I'm not so sure. I wish I was as convinced as a lot of other analysts, but I'm not. And just to reassure us, here we have the US Director of National Intelligence uh, just over a year ago. We assess, albeit with low confidence, that Pyongyang probably would not attempt to use nuclear weapons against US forces or at the territory unless it perceived its regime to be on the verge of military defeat and risked an irretrievable loss of control. A public statement, I think it's interesting how highly caveated that statement is. Now, we know that intelligence agencies impose caveats on, on everything, but it's interesting, albeit with low confidence. So even the United States publicly isn't confident that the North Koreans wouldn't use nuclear weapons in scenarios other than it being on the verge of military defeat. And for me, the key, the key phrase, well, there isn't really a key phrase in the North Korean quote, I think what's interesting there is, again, this sort of apocalyptic language, wiping out the aggressors and provokers to the last man. This is all or nothing kind of, kind of language. All right, last couple of slides. Um, finally, what is North Korea's nuclear strategy? When I worked my way through this presentation, I got to the end of the previous slide and I thought, I haven't actually answered the question. So, um, here goes. I think there are two levels that are evident. And again, this has got to do with, with using nuclear weapons for fundamentally political purposes. Leveraging a nuclear weapons capability for coercive purposes, as distinct from bargaining, i.e., you know, we'll give up these weapons or, or we'll make a serious commitment to giving up these weapons if we're given what we want in the form of external aid, i.e. extortion, essentially. I think it's moved to away from bargaining and much more towards a purposeful uh, strategy of leverage. We will leverage these weapons for coercive purposes to extract material support from South Korea and China. Actually, that, this is much more like extortion than bargaining and also to get direct unconditional dialogue with the United States. And this has become more explicit, but in a, in a kind of contradictory way, also less focused because of, because of the massive flurry of threats coming out of Pyongyang. It's actually, in a sense, I think their message has been lost in a lot of the kind of fiery, over-the-top rhetoric. And I think what you have now in the United States is a kind of discounting of a lot of this rhetoric as just bluster and propaganda, in respect of nuclear threats, that is. Uh, secondly, nuclear weapons are seen as an additional layer of deterrence aimed at preventing external threats to the regime's survival. And it also as an important degree of cover to carry out destabilising activities to keep regional states off balance. And I mentioned the attacks on Yongpyong Island in November 
2010. You know, clearly there's a risk here that as the regime becomes more confident in its ability to control any process of escalation through its possession of nuclear weapons, i.e. it will deter the United States and the ROK from responding seriously because it's a nuclear state, it will become more risk acceptant in a lot of what it does in terms of lower level activities. And I think that's the real, in many ways, the real risk. The last slide, this is more in the realm of speculation, I admit. Other probable levels of nuclear strategy uh, related to war fighting envisage nuclear weapons as a last ditch option to stave off comprehensive defeat, as I said, potentially articulating with a Samson option. There are many questions that remain, but perhaps the most important for me concerns the DPRK's nuclear command and control uh, so-called C2 uh, procedures and systems. Are these systems governed by a launch on warning, as distinct from a launch under attack doctrine to avoid decapitation at the outset of a conflict? What this means essentially is that early on in the Cold War, the United States in particular and, and the Soviet Union um, would uh, plan to launch their nuclear missiles once they had notification that the other side had launched theirs, which of course left uh, a huge risk in terms of false alarms. And this is, this is actually, came, both sides came close to initiating weapons, well, reasonably close to initiating weapons on the basis of false alarms. But the advantage of a launch on warning uh, doctrine from a new nuclear powers perspective is that you fire off your missiles before they're destroyed uh, in the early phases of a conflict. So there's a high incentive to have a kind of hair trigger alert posture particularly when you don't have a secure second strike capability. Uh, launch under attack is, is essentially you launch once you get on the ground verification that warheads are, are detonating over your territory. More risky. Not so risky if you have a submarine out at sea that can retaliate. Is authorisation for nuclear use pre-delegated to senior military commanders in, in the event that the central command authority, as I said, that key triumvirate of Kim and the Premier and the head of the Supreme People's Assembly in the event these guys are taken out of the picture early on in the conflict? Again, impossible to say. Are nuclear devices assembled and ready to go? Or are they disassembled and stored at secure locations? These are key questions. We're probably not likely to get any answers very soon. What we do know, though, is that um, even authoritarian leaders have to let their hair down occasionally with discredited ex-USMBA players. So look, I'll, I'll leave it there. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.